1: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 11th episode of Our Voices, my monthly feature, giving you an inside look into my guests' life journey and what's shaped them. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment. Hearing different experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world I hope you'll gain greater empathetic understanding of people you may not otherwise encounter. And maybe you'll see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace or more similar than not. My guest today, at least to me, appears to be living the dream. And it seems that he groomed this habit right out of college. Rather than taking what everyone else thought might be the dream job, he charted a path by choosing what he thought was, are you ready? Most interesting. Yes. He's been guided by making the choice of what most interests him. And it seems to have gone quite well. Over the past 25 years, he's founded, advised, or invested in over 100 high-tech startups, some super successful. And today, his work portfolio includes being an author, investor, speaker, and mentor. Now, he's very active in organizations he's co-founded. One is the Global Scaling Academy, which teaches individuals and organizations how to plan for and execute on hypergrowth. The other is Blitzscaling Ventures, which invests in the world's fastest growing startups. He has two degrees from Stanford University, both in the top 15% of his class and an MBA from the Harvard Business School, where he was named a Baker Scholar, as in top 5% in his class. Meet my new underachieving friend, Chris Ye. Chris, welcome to Our Voices.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Molly. It is such a huge pleasure to be here, and I can't tell you, I've been looking forward to this all week.
1: I have as well. I'm grateful for your carving up time in your very hectic schedule, and I have to tell you, my image of you is a blur. Like I just (laughs) picture that you are always in motion on top of absolutely everything, though I'm imagining there must be a Zen Chris in there somewhere. You know, your work is, is fascinating, uh, but before we get there, I'd really appreciate if you'd kindly share with listeners how your journey started and uh, perhaps start with a yay family history.
2: Yes. Yeah, so my family, of course, is Chinese and I consider myself Chinese American and my family had what was very typical a path for that time. So my parents were born in mainland China. That's how we always refer to it, mainland China. And they grew up there during the war years, World War II, and were forced into exile by the communist revolution led by Chairman Mao. And so at a very young age, they were forced to give up their homes, give up everything they had, and start over as refugees in a new land, in this case, Taiwan. And they grew up there, went to college, and then came to the United States, specifically Southern California, even more specifically Los Angeles, in the 1960s for graduate school. So that's the world that produced me. I was born in the 1970s in Santa Monica and grew up in that environment. So it was growing up in classic Southern California style. Uh, Eventually, I went to school, as you mentioned, at Stanford and then Harvard Business School. That was really the first time after graduating from Stanford that I went outside of California. And so I lived in Boston for five years. And then I came back out to Silicon Valley and I've been here ever since.
1: Wow. So let's go back to the early days in Santa Monica. And I'm curious how your parents felt. Were they sort of like, we've got to fit in? And, you know, I'm presuming they spoke Mandarin. What was it like in those early days? Were you trying to fit in? Or were there a lot of Asians around?
2: So that was one of the good things about the way I grew up. We had the best of both worlds. We had a real combination. So Santa Monica, of course, is famously one of the most liberal cities in the United States and also a pretty pleasant place to be as well. And so as a result, never really faced the kind of overt racism, at least on a regular basis, that a lot of people ended up having to face off against and it also meant that there was a significant Chinese American community so the parents organized a the west side chinese school which was a classic saturday school program where the parents taught us mandarin on saturday mornings of course i greatly resented this because when everyone else was able to go ahead and enjoy the weekend and watch Saturday morning cartoons, I would spend every Friday night doing Chinese school homework and then spend every Saturday morning attending Chinese school. So this was something that I resented greatly, although it did allow me to actually learn how to speak Mandarin, which I can do not particularly well, but a lot better than if I hadn't done
1: Chinese school. I have to say my parents had, um, had brought someone in to tutor us and that's not, not their fault. And I'm really, that's the one thing I really regret is I don't speak any Mandarin. And it's just annoying. I know folks who are white as can be and they, they can speak Mandarin. I'm like, wait a second, something must be wrong here. Um, was, you know, your parents, what were they doing for their jobs um, when they were in, when they came to the States?
2: Well, I have what has been a classic leave-it-to-beaver kind of childhood. So my father worked, and he has a PhD in electrical engineering from UCLA. And during the early part of my childhood, he worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the very famous JPL over at Caltech that worked on the space program. And he, in fact, was working on the space program. So you could say he was a rocket scientist, although his field is solid state physics. So he focused on the solar cells that went on the various satellites and and probes and things like that. And then my mother, she has a degree, a master's degree in library science from USC. But because my father had good jobs all the time when we were growing up, she didn't work. She stayed home and took care of my sister, who's four and a half years older, and me. So I grew up in a classic leave it to beaver style, which means that, you know, I had parents who were married. We had a classic four-person nuclear family. Uh, If I went to school, my mom would take me to school and then pick me up and bring me home. There was always someone around. Oftentimes we'd see our grandparents on weekends almost every week. So it was an idyllic kind of family environment.
1: So fortunate. I love it. Do you have any memories of uh, outbursts when you were kind of a pain in the butt for your parents or were you kind of going along with the flow?
2: Yeah. So unfortunately, I have to admit that I was not always the easiest child to deal with. So I would say that there were definitely outbursts. Uh, I would complain. I would gripe. Uh, I was never a violent child or anything like that, but I rest assured it was not easy being my parent. And this also showed up at school where I would sometimes get into trouble. And this was exacerbated by the fact that my sister was a classic student and I was not. So what I mean by that is that my sister was a student that all the teachers loved so dearly and always got A's in all her subjects. And so she was the one that all the teachers wanted in their class. And they assumed, hey, this guy's coming out of the same household. Presumably, he must be the same way. And the answer is no. Instead, they got this guy who was very intent on getting what he wanted, who wasn't necessarily satisfied with what they were doing, would correct them all the time. No, what you say is not actually true. That's a gross oversimplification, (laughs) and would not be interested in what they were doing. And so my sister would get straight A's and I would get much poorer grades and a lot of complaints. So it was not easy for my parents. And that ended up with me actually spending a number of years in private school at the famed Merman School for Gifted Children, because it was only when I was given challenging material that I then said, oh, well, okay, now we'll actually pay attention.
1: You were a pain in the butt. I could, I could totally. Very much so. I could totally see that. The, um, I can see the sub- sibling rivalry as well. Um, what about the um, um, extracurriculars? Did you know people hear about the tiger parents of the Asians? Were and your parents are, are academics. They're very into education, obviously was it ever an option Were you you know like you better be the best at everything that you do or else i mean how did you feel about any pressure to perform at school and in extracurriculars
2: well that's one of the fascinating things so there were definitely tiger moms aplenty during those days but strangely enough my parents didn't subscribe to that and it can be reflected by the fact that the dream that my mother always had for me was that i would someday be an english professor somewhere and she thought that that would be an environment in which I would thrive and perhaps not get into too much trouble. But it was not the case that they would ever push me. In fact, there were a couple times in my childhood when I complained to my mother and I said, look at these kids around you. Uh, They're being pushed by their mothers and they're doing pretty well. But I'm so much smarter than them. If you pushed me, I would be one of those geniuses on TV. And fortunately, she was wise enough not to take the bait. And she said, you know, there's more important things than that. So I was actually living a very unpressured childhood where I wasn't required to do a lot of things. And I spent most of my time reading and enjoying myself, playing with friends, playing video games. I really had like the opposite of a tiger mom childhood.
1: Wow. That is fascinating. Ah, I love that. So the thing that's really striking when I first met you is that you're so, well, you know, you're a public speaker, you're very in your skin and communicating, you know, Asians, I would say, stereotypically people would say, well, they're quiet and they're reserved and they don't speak up very much. So did you always have that in you to be quite forthright and happy to share whatever you thought uh, was that a learned thing? I'm, I'm really curious how that's become so, uh, like it's a natural for you.
2: Well, there's two elements to it. The first is I would say that people who think that Asians are quiet and reserved have obviously never seen them at home or with their friends because my God, The Chinese culture is so incredibly loud and boisterous on those occasions that people just don't even understand because they haven't seen it. They've seen only the professional side. But even taking that into account, from the time I was a child, I was wildly extroverted and loved attention. So when we were gathered in these family gatherings and, you know, family friends were together, you know, we would do things like play cards and I'd be singing songs. I'd be declaiming to the assembled adults what I thought. And they thought it was cute most of the time, not always and so i was always eager for attention and that's something that's carried over i love an audience even today i get a chance to speak to audiences all the time and every time i enjoy it it's never a case that i see an audience i'm like oh man another another audience instead so i'm like look an audience and i might be tired afterwards just from expending energy but it's certainly not because i am uh, uh, i'm against seeing people in fact i love seeing people and i derive energy from it
1: Oh, I think it's just fantastic how you are so at one with what you're doing, because I just I wish that for everyone. Uh, talk a bit about any potential or any significant mentors, or maybe there are family members who may have come into play in your younger years. And then was it a no-brainer? I'm going to go to Stanford because it's right around the corner. I'm just I'm just curious how you made that decision.
2: So there have been so many people who have had an important role in my life. I feel bad about leaving anybody out. But I'll go ahead and try to mention as many as I can. Obviously, my parents were a big influence. My mother is probably where I get my extroverted side from. She is one of these people who talks to people in line at the grocery store and, and knows everyone. And certainly, as you heard, she had a lot to deal with as I was growing up. But So she was my guardian and the person who battled with the various schools to make sure I got what I needed to get. Meanwhile, my father was more traditionally uh, an electrical engineer and like a classic engineer, less a man of words, more a man of of action and making things. But one of the things I will remember is that on weekends, when I suppose my parents probably wanted to sleep, Uh, I didn't really care. I would go into my parents' bedroom and I would ask my father questions about the world. And he was very well-read and knowledgeable. So he would tell me, oh, this is how rockets work, or this is how you make gunpowder, or this is why the stars twinkle. And so I got a great scientific education from a very young age from my father. He was really a mentor there. Uh, My auntie Janie, who is my mother's older sister, was also somebody who was an important figure in my life. She was around quite a bit. She had a PhD in chemical engineering, but was quite a fan of literature. And so between my mother's library science degree and my aunt, I was always well supplied with books and culture and other things like that. Over at school, there were quite a number of teachers who played an important role in my life. Uh, Stanford, the reason I was thinking about Stanford is that one of these teachers named Berkeley Blatz, he's still alive, thank goodness. Uh, He taught in the Santa Monica public school system for over 40 years. He also taught at law school. And he had gone to Stanford as an undergraduate. And we did independent studies together. I took all of his classes. He taught me how to write. So he played a super important role in my life. And he always extolled the virtues of Stanford, which of course was his alma mater. So that was one of the reasons why I chose to go to Stanford. Uh, I do also want to mention the late great Harold Connolly, who was the vice principal of my high school, Santa Monica High School. Harold Connolly was an educator, but he was also a multiple Olympic gold medalist and also a a pioneer in the field of disabled athletes. He actually, when he was born, suffered a disabling injury to his arm. Despite this, he competed in the regular Olympics in the hammer throw, winning the gold medal on multiple occasions, basically with one arm. So a remarkable figure. And when my mother saw that I was having trouble readjusting to the public schools after my seventh grade year, Harold Connolly was kind enough along with the other department heads at the high school to let me skip two grades and start high school early so I could continue my education. And he was a critical figure. He offered me one of my first jobs, Uh, was just a fascinating, wonderful human being and individual. I passed away a number of years ago because obviously he was much older than I, but uh, was hale and hearty to the end.
1: Wow can't believe he won the hammer throw, won the gold disabled. That's unbelievable,
2: wow. Absolutely, you can find him on Wikipedia. It's a remarkable story. They even made a movie about it because in addition to everything else, during the Olympics, he and his first wife who was from Eastern Europe fell in love and she defected from her country so that they could marry. Uh, Sadly, eventually they got divorced But in addition, uh, some of their children were... The entire family is extremely athletic. Several of Harold's children went on to compete in the Olympics as well, though not with as much success as he.
1: Wow, that's crazy. That's amazing. Family in China? Yes, no? Have you visited much? We still have
2: family in China. I have never actually visited them in China, though they have come to visit us here in the United States. And uh, we grew up, I, well, I did. I obviously <laughs> didn't grow up there, but the family was sort of in more of the Chongqing area. And so I've never gone back and visited, but I still have some family in Shanghai.
1: Yeah, nice. Well, hopefully at some point when we all can travel, you'll have a chance to go back. We'll table it for now. You had a very fascinating combo of your uh, undergrad degrees at Stanford and just help. Share with us what they were and how you ended up going there um, because it's obviously paved the way for what you do now.
2: So my two degrees from Stanford are in product design engineering and creative writing. So product design engineering, of course, is where design thinking comes from. My advisor was David Kelly, the founder of IDEO. And so it was a phenomenal background for somebody who is involved in the startup world, because if you think about the product orientation and really understanding product and design, that education has been enormously valuable even though i've never really worked professionally as a designer similarly on the creative writing side that was something where you study writing very broadly obviously i'm studying the traditional elements of english literature shakespeare and other things like that but we also studied of course literary fiction literary nonfiction, experimental fiction and poetry and just getting a grounding in all the different techniques of writing has always been very helpful to me as well. And the way I got into these is I just have always loved creativity and innovation. I love things that are different. I love things that are new. And these were two majors which really, I felt, captured the essence of those things. And so even though you know you might think that they're a strange combination, right to be both a creative writing major staying up all night to finish a short story and a product design major staying up all night to finish an engineering project, uh, yet it somehow all works together.
1: <laughs> That's spectacular. You know, underpinning this whole say it skillfully, uh, and, and listeners know this, is that people can really be true to themselves, grounded in themselves. And I love this early story where you know it just you didn't bat an eyelash, and and talk about how you decided you you had kind of gotten this quote unquote dream job, which everyone else would have gone for, and you you bailed on that and and chose, you know, the path less traveled.
2: Yeah, so when I graduated from Stanford, I was trying to figure out what I would do. And I wasn't entirely certain. So I did a variety of things. I actually applied to one or two MFA programs for creative writing in case I wanted to continue that. Uh, But then eventually I decided, you know, I was going to enter the work world. And so, fortunately for me, when your advisor is the founder of IDEO, it is relatively easier to get a job. And so (laughs) David just sort of said, okay, sounds great. Why don't you come work for me? And so I was going to do that. But that was when fate intervened. And I received this letter in the mail, a mysterious letter from D.E. Shaw and Company. And the mysterious letter read, uh, basically said something along the lines of, hello, I'm David Shaw. You don't know who I am, but I run D.E. Shaw and Company, which is a hedge and investment bank that focuses on hiring the smartest people in the world. And because of your academic achievement, you've come to our attention. We'd like to talk with you about the different things that we're doing. And I had this letter, which I later found out the way that D.E. Shaw handles this is every year for recruiting season. The company puts out a bounty for people who can get the graduation programs from the top universities. There's basically 25 universities on the list. And they then go ahead and look up every single person who graduated with distinction or honors and send them that letter. And so I received this letter. And I was going to throw it out when my mother said, you know, this sounds like some sort of rich Wall Street company. Wouldn't you like to fly first class on an airplane for perhaps the only time in your life? Wouldn't that be enjoyable? Why don't you just go? And I said, you know what, mom, you're right. And so I responded to the letter and I got on the telephone. And sure enough, they flew me out to New York first class. I got to sit at the front of the plane for the very first time. They brought me those nuts that they warm up on the plane. I was like, wow, this is great. Of course, I was too young to be served any alcohol. So I couldn't take advantage of that because I was, I think, 19 at the time. But I did go to visit D.E. Shaw & Company. And again, my only intention was to have a cool, fun trip. But what ended up happening is when I got there, I discovered that they were doing projects that related to the internet, which was something I was very interested in at Stanford. The internet was very new at the time, or at least the commercial internet. The Netscape was just starting to come out. And I had actually done some work in my experimental fiction class on metafiction, hypertext, and other things that were online. And I was convinced that this was going to be something that was huge. And so when I found out that they were working on internet projects, I said, well, that's different. And at that point, I flipped from being somebody who was just there for the experience to somebody who actually was like, maybe I want to do this work. And so I ended up interviewing there and they really liked me and they brought me back, flew me first class to Boston to interview with people there. Each time I think I interviewed with like eight people per day. So classic sort of interviewing experience. And it was around that same time I needed to list people as a reference. And so I listed and I called up my my old friend and mentor, Harold Connolly and asked him if he would serve as a reference. He said, well, absolutely. But since you're not continuing with your studies, how about if you come work for me? And so then I flew out to Washington D.C. to meet with the Special Olympics because he was the deputy director of the Special Olympics basically running the place and so I got to meet with the very famous Sergeant Shriver who of course was in charge of the Special Olympics and his uh, his wife Eunice Shriver had Eunice Shriver his sister Eunice Shriver Kennedy of course had founded the Special Olympics and so that became another option as well and so it all became very confusing but fortunately in the end i decided you know what i think that this internet thing is going to be big i feel like i should jump on this and so i ended up accepting the offer from d.e shaw and company
1: wow that is insane for a young person to be going through that you can't even you don't even really know how marvelous that is
2: and there's this rant there's this theme of luck uh i am a big believer in luck I think that it is great to be lucky. I consider myself to be lucky. I often jokingly say, nobody ever says, look, there goes Chris. He's poor. He's obscure. He's miserable. He's so lucky. Being lucky is inherently a good thing. But when you look at the luck that I had during that time period, you can see it is due to the long period of preparation that went before it. So I had as a mentor, my advisor, David Kelly, which is why I had an offer to go work at IDEO. And I had my mentor, Harold Conley, from when I was in high school, which is why I had an offer to go work for the Special Olympics. And it was because of my performance at Stanford that I received this letter from D.E. Shaw and Company, and my mother convinced me to go. And so all these things are certainly quite lucky, but they're also the result of what has happened in the
1: past. Yeah. I love, I use this term, you earn the luck and you you clearly did that. You know, I think there's a lot of folks, uh, young people, it's not necessarily, you know, they don't really know that really what you're doing now could have quite a significant impact on your future. And the the grades thing and being top of class, was that something that you just knew you wanted to do? You just knew you're super smart and you just wanted the grades? And I'm, cause it's you know, it's a ton of work. So I'm just wondering how you thought about the whole grade thing.
2: So that's an excellent question. The first thing is I was very, very competitive and I love excelling, right? And this is one of those classic things I think a lot of people have as they're growing up. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to continue excelling at every academic level. Academics always came relatively easier for me. It wasn't always easy. There was a lot of hard work that was involved. Believe me, when you're reading thousands of pages a week, it really is a lot of work. But it was relatively less work for me than for most of my classmates, which is why I was able to do two majors at once. So for me, the grades were one thing. It wasn't something where I felt like, oh, these grades are the the end in themselves. I always viewed them as a means to an end. Uh, I viewed them as a measurement uh, as part of the competition. And I viewed them as things that created option value for me. And more to the point, you know, I, later, as the later I got in my career and when I was at business school, you know, what I realized is the, again, as a means to an end, I'm going to pursue them, but I'm not going to pursue them in a way that prevents me from doing the other things I want. And so even when I was at Stanford, I was still able to do things that I thought were interesting and which, probably paid off just as much as the academic work later on. So while I was at Stanford, I was also a longtime member and later director of one of the improvisational comedy groups at Stanford. Stanford's very famous for its improv comedy. And I was also a teacher of public speaking for the engineering department. And I was also a peer counselor for the peer counseling program, helping people uh, process the issues in their life. And all of these things probably contributed just as much or more to my success in my career as all the academic things I studied.
1: Wow. That's a lot to cover. So I'm presuming you do need to sleep. So how did you keep the balance and not Seriously, how did you kind of do it all and what had to give, if anything? I mean, how, how did you manage all that?
2: So, you know, fortunately, because I was very young, I did not need to allocate a bunch of time to getting drunk and then recovering from getting drunk. So as a result, I probably had more time than the average college student uh, available to do these various things. And then the other thing, of course, is I was very quick. Uh, I've always been very fast. I can read extremely fast. I can write extremely fast. I can do work extremely fast. And that allowed me to do things that would save me time. So for example, when I worked on things like math and physics and other problem sets, I would do them very quickly, shortly after they were assigned. And then I would let other people use them as a study guide to help them get through their homework in exchange for their checking and telling me when I made dumb errors. So that was one of the things I did to save time uh, when I was in business school. For example, this is something I'm always very proud of. I love talking, telling this story at business school. You know, I, again, business school is something it may be challenging for some people, but I tell people, listen. If you have the combination of quantitative skill from having an engineering degree and writing skill and speaking skill from being a writing major and also a teacher of public speaking, business school is actually really easy. And so what I did in business school at HBS is I quickly came upon a system where I would do all of my work for the week on Saturday morning before my wife woke up. And that meant that the rest of the time, I could do whatever I wanted. I could enjoy myself. I could go to the gym. I could uh, manage our intramural basketball team. We could think about starting companies. uh, All these things were possible because I did all the work in three hours on Saturday morning.
1: God, you're unbelievable. Okay, the public speaking. How did you – were you – I mean obviously you were interested in it it wasn't didn't sound like it was a huge struggle but what did you do to become so proficient and then to be able to teach public speaking
2: So I always had the gift of gab as they would say <laughs> in dear old ireland my ancestral homeland and so i was always somebody who would speak in class and if there was a project and we needed someone to speak for the project i would speak for the project and i would do presentations and again as i mentioned i was part of improvisational comedy and other things i certainly did not have any fear of being on stage but in terms of the kind of public speaking that i do today it really was the case that i said well you know this The engineering department has this very famous public speaking class that people are supposed to take. Why don't I take it? Aren't I going to be great at it? And I did have a lot of natural talent for it, but then I learned the actual techniques of public speaking, how to structure an argument, how to manage the delivery of a speech, all the different things that actually separate somebody who is merely talented from somebody who is talented and has also practiced the skills. And so I did very well in the class once I learned these things. And at the end of the class, the instructors came to me and said, you know, you're one of our best students. And we're always looking for people who are interested in teaching the program. And by the way, you actually get paid for doing this. And I said, "Well, this is very interesting. And this is a day and age when as a student, you know, if you wanted to work, you could get some work you know, in food service, serving up food, and they would pay you something like you know, six bucks an hour. And <laughs> if I taught public speaking, they paid me the princely sum of $15 an hour. So I'm like, oh my God, I got to get out of this gold mine. And so I ended up taking the class to become a teacher and then teaching public speaking for a significant chunk of the time I was at Stanford.
1: Wow, well, that's great. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are are listening and most of us uh, wouldn't say we excel at it. So do you have a tip or two that you could share with listeners about um, how to be better in public speaking?
2: So I would say that most people, what they have trouble with is what we call delivery, which is how do you deliver your speech? So I'm gonna give you my top three tips for how to deliver your speech. Tip number one, when you are speaking, Until you have gotten more uh, skilled and practiced at it, what I want you to do is I want you to take a wider stance and plant your feet. And the reason is, if you watch someone on videotape, you will see that people do what we call the dancing bear. They're nervous, so they're rocking back and forth from foot to foot, and it really doesn't look very good. And if you plant your feet and you're like, I'm just not going to move my feet, then you're going to be better off than 90% of the people out there. Now, when you're more advanced, then you start to figure out, okay, here's when I walk on stage, right? When you watch these great TED Talks and these great speakers, they know how to use their movement on stage. But that takes time and practice. So just to start with, plant your feet and don't move, and you'll be better off than most people. The second thing is to really consider the use of your voice as an instrument one of the things that we have such a struggle with and again we are teaching in the engineering department is people who thought that the way you speak is to just go ahead and speak everything at the same level with the same pace with the same tone and pretty soon everyone's falling asleep <laughs> and what we tell people is listen you've got to vary the pace you've got to know when you can use silence to really punctuate a point You need to get your voice to go up to the higher levels or maybe down if you want to emphasize something. And if you're using your voice in that way, you're again going to be ahead of people, way, way ahead of people, because most people are so nervous when they speak, they just fall back into this monotone. And the final thing, which unfortunately you cannot see in a podcast form, but I will paint the word picture for you, is how you gesture. So when you are speaking on stage, and again, I'm speaking specifically on stage and things that are in person, on Zoom, it's a little different, although it still works. The way that people gesture is usually wrong. When people want to gesture, you'll see them, they'll move their hands, perhaps. They'll often count on their fingers or things like that. And these are small motions that look weak and inconsistent. And you don't want to do that. What I tell people is, if you are going to gesture, I want your gestures to be larger. The more space you take up with your arms, the more confidence that you're projecting. And when you do these gestures, I want you to use your whole hand and arms, not just your fingers. The bigger the motion, the better. And so I will tell people, the way I want you to gesture is I want you to use your entire hand and arm if you want to point at something. Don't just use a finger. And when you do so, you will do point one, point two, Point three, And you can't see it, but I'm taking my hand and I'm just moving it very clearly from point one to point two to point three in motions that are clearly intentional. And the other one is the in front of you, I call it, uh, you can call it sort of the bread loaves. So you often have your hands and you'll do bread loaf one to the left, bread loaf two in the middle, bread loaf three to the right. And that's how you can gesture a three-point argument or something like that. So if you use this stance where you're not doing the dancing bear, if you are using your voice in a way as a musical instrument rather than this terrible monotone, and if you are gesturing in a way that is clear and decisive using your entire hand and your entire arm, then you will be ahead of 99% of speakers.
1: Wow, that was a bonus. Okay, I hope everyone was taking a lot of notes for that because I think that is genius. I love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris.
2: My pleasure.
1: So, okay be real here. Periods of struggle. When did you struggle? Periods of self-doubt, if ever?
2: So let's see. Periods of struggle. So the clearest period of struggle in my life was when I returned from private school to public school for my seventh grade year. Now, I think that most people will agree that junior high, as they called it then, or middle school, as they call it now, tends to be a low point for just about everyone. Very few people are like, you know what's great? Middle school. (laughs) And the, the, the same was true for me. I mean, it was a huge culture shock. Uh, I was suddenly in classes that were years behind where I was. There were bullies that would attack me on a regular basis. And it was just miserable. I really disliked it. And this was one of the battles that my mother had to fight when we went to the principal of the middle school and said, hey, what are you going to do about it? And her answer was, well, nothing. I mean, if this material is beneath him, then when he takes it, he'll just get straight A's. And then he'll be out of here in another two years. And we're like, what on earth? What kind of advice is this? Uh, by the way, this, this is, I think a bit of overt racism. Uh, So one of the pieces of evidence that we used to signal to them that this was beneath me, besides the fact that of course I had A's in all my classes, was that for the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth program, when I was 12, I took the SAT. That's what you do to get into the program at the time. You took the SAT and you had to score a certain level. And when I was 12 years old and I took the SAT, I got a 1380 which qualified me, I think, as one of the top five people in the country for that age range. And when we mentioned that to the principal, she said, well, he's just a good test taker. Now, I want you to picture this. Are they going to say that to people from a different background? Or is it something that they're going to say because they view Asian Americans and Asians as people who are test takers, people who, you know, with their conniving ability to get things right, somehow rise to the front of the line unfairly. Well, that did not go over very well with us, which is why we ended up going to my great mentor, Harold Connolly and jumping ahead to high school two years early. There was also the opportunity to jump straight to college at UCLA, but even at 12 years old, I was wise enough to know that might not be the best idea. They had that television show on starring Neil Patrick Harris, Doogie Hauser, about being a doctor at age 16, and I was like, that does not look good. I think that skipping to college at age 12 is probably not a good idea, and I think that I've been proven right in the long run. <laughs>
1: This is hysterical. Thank you for sharing that. So this is a thing, intellectually so genius, right? Gifted, smart, got it. Mm -hmm. The emotional intelligence, the self-awareness in uh, appreciating that other people may experience us differently than we might perceive ourselves. Tell us, Chris, about your learning that way. Were you as advanced on that dimension as well?
2: Oh, dear God, no so i was as you can imagine so full of myself and my abilities perhaps justifiably so but nonetheless very full of myself that i was not the most emotionally aware person i will in my own defense say that you know i was very young for my age and everything else and so you know that's something which i really had to learn over time and i give a lot of credit for that to my classmates and friends at Stanford because they were willing to put up with me and all the different things I would say. For example, one of my friends pointed out to me when I made the statement, well, of course, I'm the smartest person I've ever met. He said, well, that means you're saying that the rest of us are not as smart as you. I'm like, yes, that's correct. I mean, isn't that obvious to everyone? And he's like, you know, that's not the winning way. And that's not the best way to get people on your side. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, you're actually right about that. Didn't really think about it that way. And so having people around who had lived a more normal life and were able to help me understand how to see things through other people's eyes was very important. The other element of it, which I mentioned briefly before, was the training I received for peer counseling. And of course, when you're in peer counseling at Stanford, the core of what you're learning about is the art of active listening and empathy and listening to people, not judging them, not trying to solve their problems, just really listening and trying to reflect back to them what they're saying to make sure you truly understand what their point of view is. And going through that active listening training really changed my life. It really gave me this additional set of skills that I probably didn't have before then and which have proven enormously useful ever since. And so one of the things I also recommend to people if they are young people is to take a course in peer counseling and active listening and even if you're older to learn a bit more about active listening so you can employ it in your own life.
1: Wow, that's great. That really it's just it's fascinating to me how this all these experiences have really knit together to help you you excel at being you in the ways you've wanted. That's really marvelous.
2: Um, And part of it is also that, and I think this is something anyone can do, that you take control of your own narrative, your own story about your own life, right? These are all things which, again, because I've told them in a particular way, they seem to all tie together. But you could very well just sort of say, well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you be a math and science genius, and then also take creative writing and do randomly peer counseling, but also improv comedy? What is the common thread that ties them all together? And telling the story in a way with an emphasis on the things that I thought were important is what makes it a coherent narrative. And you should look at your own life, listeners, and figure out how to tell your story. And I think in the process of figuring out how to tell your own story, it'll give you insight into to yourself
1: uh, such a gem i hope everyone's writing that down that is genius uh let's segue to the family you know career you i mean clearly you're just curious you're interested in everything wife kids how did you balance all of that uh was it as seamless as the rest of this life may be coming across Well, no, I mean, I think
2: there's always a struggle for all of us. I mean, anyone who's ever been a parent knows that you quickly discover that not everything in the world is under your control and that sometimes you're just trying to cling to dear life. I mean, in the early days when the kids were young, I remember being constantly sleep deprived and just dreaming of the day when I'd actually be able to sleep through the night. The prospect of being able to sleep through the night was like, oh my God, I can't imagine what would that feel like? And so I think it's something that a lot of parents are, are used to feeling. Uh, I think that, you know, it also meant that I had to make certain decisions in my life. And, for example, in 2007, seven, two thousand seven, when my children were still relatively young, uh, that was the last time that I took on a role as CEO of a company. And I took on a role as interim CEO of a company called Ustream, which was a live video pioneer. Eventually, IBM bought it for $130 million. It was a good outcome for everyone. But being a CEO is such an all-consuming thing. And I found it was a particularly stressful for a variety of reasons. And I found that I would be working and the office and then I would leave the office so I could pick up my children from daycare. And then I would take them back home and I would be with my family and I would send them to sleep and then I would work until two or 3 AM and then get up at 6 AM to start the whole process over again. And it was all consuming and it was unhealthy and it was also not good for the family because even if i was making the time to spend with them clearly i was exhausted i was not my usual self and one of the things i realized is again some of it was circumstance but some of it is just being a ceo if you're carrying a responsible individual is an all-consuming thing and so i made a deliberate decision to step back from being a ceo And I took some time off, not a lot, but a little bit. And after thinking about it very clearly for a while, I decided I was not going to take on any other CEO roles until the kids were much older. And the reason was I just said, you know, it's impossible to really balance these things. There are some things you just can't balance And I, even I, with whatever capabilities I have, and and hopefully you get the sense that I'm pretty good at balancing things and doing things quickly, even I couldn't make it work. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to choose my family. I don't care if this means that I will not be the CEO of a company. That's not as important to me as having a life that I'm happy to live. And many years later, now that the kids are old enough, I theoretically could go back to that life. I could probably take on a CEO role again, but guess what? I don't want to. And so I left that behind and I'm never going back. I love it.
1: New chapter has opened. So share with listeners a bit about your professional life now and why you do it. What moves you the most about it?
2: So uh, I, I have this mission statement and it's actually recorded in my friend's book, The Startup of You, that's the book that was Reed Hoffman's first book, and he co-authored it with my other friend, Ben Kaznoka. And in it, they talk about the importance of having a personal mission statement. And fortunately for them, when they needed an example, they had a friend who had been on this for a while already. And I've long said for well over 15 years now, probably almost 20, that my personal mission statement is very simple. I help interesting people do interesting things. And I think you can tell from all we've talked about that I really have this intellectual curiosity. And I love things that I find interesting, but I also love to work through others to help people achieve more. I'm an extrovert. I don't get a lot of pleasure out of just sitting by myself and doing something. <laughs> and so it's all based around that principle of help interesting people do interesting things. One of the interesting people that I help do interesting things is my friend, Reed Hoffman, who is the co-founder of LinkedIn and many other enormous achievements. And we've written two different books together, Blitz Scaling and The Alliance, along with our friend Ben Kaznoka. And we podcast together for his venture capital firm, Greylock Partners. And we write things for various magazines and other things like that. And we have this intellectual partnership where, you know, it's the best of both worlds. Reed is one of those people who is a true genius, but also a great human being. And so when we write things, we're writing not just to explore things because they're interesting, but also to have an impact on the world. And that's one of the things that makes that partnership really work for me. You can imagine there's plenty of other people in this world who've reached out to me and said, hey, would you write something with me? Would you write something with me? But oftentimes what they're looking for is they want the prestige. Right, They want the, the the ability to say, oh, look, I am a public intellectual too, rather than wanting to have an impact on the world. And so the work that we do, again, very focused on entrepreneurship, but also on whatever else happens to be interesting to us. So for example, our next podcast that's going to come out is going to be about decision making. The last one was looking back on the career of Jeff Bezos and what made Jeff Bezos successful. Uh, we've talked about many other topics that don't necessarily fit squarely in the field of this is how you start a company, but it's stuff that we find interesting. So that is a big part of what I do. Uh, In addition, I support the books by doing a lot of public speaking. As I mentioned to you, I spoke about blitzscaling probably three times yesterday in different public events. And I like to joke, for those of you who remember the classic movie from the 1980s, Beetlejuice, starring Michael Keaton and a very young Winona Ryder, (laughs) if you say the word blitzscaling three times quickly, then I just mysteriously pop up. So I do a lot of this public intellectual work and I really enjoy it because it gives me a chance to to meet audiences and develop connections. And that's fantastic. Uh, in addition to that, uh, that work on writing books and, and being a public intellectual. I also run this firm that you mentioned, Blitzscaling Ventures, along with a couple of partners. And the goal of Blitzscaling Ventures, again, to serve the purpose of helping interesting people do interesting things. We use the power of the ideas of Blitzscaling to identify the highest potential startups in the world. And I then develop a relationship with their CEOs, and which allows us to invest in their companies and help them scale. And I can hardly think of a higher leverage way to get a chance to work with interesting people who are going to have an impact on the world than to help out the founder and CEO of a company that's going to be the next Airbnb, or the next Stripe, or the next Amazon, or what have you. So that is fantastic. And I get to spend time doing things that a lot of other people don't find enjoyable, like, talking to potential investors about investing into the fund. I love it. It's a great opportunity for me to tell a story and meet someone who's interesting and accomplished. So I count myself as enormously lucky. And as I said, it's good to be lucky.
1: Yeah, I love the fact that you are just so centered in like doing your secret sauce. And I just, I really um, hope for people to find that kind of love Um for what they do. Cause it, you can, it, you can feel it coming through. It's just amazing. Um, we talked a bit about the extent to which, you know, the playing field is really level, you know, and think of diversity very broadly. And I'd love your comments on what do you think needs to happen? You mentioned being quite in a minority as being, you know, East Asian male doing what you're doing, just thoughts on how we can all be more part of the solution and, and creating more understanding and, and creating more opportunity for all well it is
2: a difficult one i wish i had the solution for systemic racism that i could provide in the next 90 seconds that would allow everyone to make it work but sadly i don't seem to have that just yet but i do have thoughts i think the first thing is people need to develop that greater sense of empathy as we mentioned, I didn't always have a great sense of empathy. I mean, I always felt empathy. It's, it's, it, I always felt badly for others, but I didn't know how to express it. I didn't know how to really hone it until I'd been trained, and I think we live in a world where there is so much less empathy than there once was, where people are really focused on winning as opposed to understanding. And so I think that helping people understand how to take other points of view is a big part of it. I think one of the things that would help is if people were put in touch with folks who are different than them. You know, you learn a lot more from talking with people with different backgrounds and with different experiences than just uh just talking with people who have the same ones. And yet we live in a world where social media has unfortunately tended to concentrate people in a way such they tend to only spend time with people who are like them. I was just speaking recently with a friend of mine who is African-American. He works in the entertainment industry. He appears on a cable network all the time. So he'll remain nameless since I haven't asked him about this, uh, permission to say this. But he was talking about how, you know, It's. I don't think people really understand the kind of strain I go through on a daily basis, even though I'm a well-paid professional who is relatively famous on television and all these other things. Like, for example, we're getting my house assessed. Well, I know that economically, the best thing for me to do is to make sure I'm not there when the house is assessed. And that when the house is assessed, the person who is there is my lovely, attractive white wife. But at the same time, when I think about doing that, it just has this psychic cost of knowing that is the systemic racism right there. And it's something that I've even internalized. So I think that if more people were to hear from a friend those kinds of experiences, they would have a greater understanding. Like I have friends who will say, I don't believe there's any systemic racism in the United States of America. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know if you necessarily have that experience because guess what? All those friends are wealthy white men uh, who say things like that. And they say, no, no, I have black friends. I'm like, uh, you know, you sound like a cliche, you've really got to make a stronger effort to, to empathize, to be open to new ideas. So I think that that is a big part of it. But finally, I do think that the history of the United States shows that the way that things get better is primarily through government action. And I am an ardent capitalist, I believe strongly in the power of business, but I do not believe that capitalism and business are capable of solving every problem in this world. And when we look at things like the problem of racism in this country, the ways that racism has been uh, hampered and addressed is through legal action through the civil rights act through the government taking an active role in trying to make things right and i think believing that we don't see race i'm like you know, you it may be that you don't see race that's because people don't see race in you if people saw your race and they treated you differently because of it all the time in a negative way you would very quickly start to see race So it is a tough situation, a tough sort of challenge that, you know, this country has not succeeded in yet. But I don't believe that there are a lot of other countries around around the world that have succeeded much better. Uh, I think that we're still trying. And I think that if we all continue to make this effort, continue to try to reach out. And by the way, that means things like speaking up when you see something happening that's wrong, letting other people know what your point of view is. I think that we will continue to make progress, even though it is a lot slower than we'd like.
1: So many gems. As we wrap it up here, um... What would you say, you know, having gone through your life history, do you have a top takeaway? It's
2: really interesting because I hadn't really thought about the question of the extent to which my parents wanted us to fit in. That's an interesting question that just hadn't occurred to me before. And again, it reveals in the kind of environment I grew up in, the power of having a community, a community that shares many of the same experiences, that shares the same background, and more importantly is shares the same uh, the same characteristics as which are viewed by the outside world. And I feel like one of the things that made my experience better than for a lot of people is because I never felt like I was the only person in a situation. There were always other people around who shared that experience. And that's something that I think is consistent throughout. I've heard a number of people speaking about what the experience was to be the only woman or the only African-American or what have you in a situation. And it's just so much easier to have at least one other person there. And I think that that's something that only really got reinforced for me when you mentioned that. In terms of takeaways for the listeners, the primary one is to not get caught up in labels. Now, this is not labels in terms of race and ethnicity and religion and things like that. This is labels in terms of job titles. People often say things like, I want to be a product manager, I want to be a CEO. I think what people should do is take a step back and say, well, what are the daily activities involved in doing this? So, for example, I want to be a best selling author and public speaker. Well, what are the activities that you are actually going to be doing if that's the case? Well, let's see, you're going to be writing books, which means you are going to be doing a lot of research, you are to be reading a lot of things, you're gonna be talking with people and interviewing them, you're gonna be assembling large lists of facts and figures and stories, you're gonna put them into a structure, you're gonna spend long hours actually writing and rewriting and rewriting, and you're gonna work with a literary agent and a publisher and there'll be all these people who weigh in and you'll want to say no, it's just fine the way it is and then after a while you're like, well, they're probably right because if they don't see it, then maybe the readers won't see it and therefore I have to make a change and then you get the book out into their hands and then you have to think about how I'm gonna market the book and how am I going to get on to various podcasts to guest or where can I get speaking engagements and I have to talk with 10 people for each engagement that I end up getting and when you think about all those things you there's so much more detail than just oh I want to be a best-selling author and public speaker and you have to decide are those activities that you actually enjoy? Do you enjoy doing those individual things? And to architect a life where you are actually on a day-to-day basis performing activities that you enjoy or at least tolerate in order to achieve a goal that you think is important, that to me is the secret.
1: I love it. You have inspired me. I thank you for sharing so generously. And uh, and I thank you for being part of the solution. The world is a better place, Chris. And I know our paths will cross. If there's anything I can do to be of service to you, please do let me know. I'm cheering for you.
2: Well, Molly, it's been a true pleasure. You're a fantastic dialogist. You're a person who really asks questions that bring out deeper meaning. So I'm so thrilled that I got a chance to be here. <sighs>
1: So my thought for the week is from the late Suzuki Roshi, a Zen monk who helped popularize Zen Buddhism in the U.S. and founded the first Zen Buddhist monastery outside Asia. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibility, but in the experts, there are few. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Chris's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel.